This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Secret Life of Words, English Words, and Their Origins. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 48, wherein we ask and attempt to answer the question, what does it mean to sound gay? Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. I want to start off, as I usually do, by reading a couple of emails. We got a lot of mail about our number theory episode. This was our episode about how, in English, we used to say and write our numbers, for example, 4 and 20, as opposed to 24. We've since flipped it and dropped the and, and that episode was all about how and why we got to where we are. We got a whole bunch of letters from people who were German. Wait, wait, wait. How much is a whole bunch? Oh, I don't know. Six and 30? <laughs> yeah, six and 30 letters saying? Saying that, yes, we Germans are weird, and it's confusing, and it's even confusing for us. So one letter was from an assistant professor at the University of Vienna. His name is Lorenz. He said, I just spent my bike ride to work listening to your episode on number theory. Having had slight problems all my life with getting the order of numbers right, I searched around the internet and came upon this link. So the link is in German, but he paraphrases it, and he says, here's the gist of what this article is talking about. 
two German doctors met a couple in the 1980s who had severe difficulties in learning to read and calculate, he says. The two had a son who at age 13 could calculate 26 and 32 easily, but only in English. When doing calculations in German, he would systematically get the order of numbers wrong. The two doctors reported in 2003 that they have helped around 200 families and their kids by recommend doing calculations in English only. They have Deutschlexia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one of the problems is... I just said Deutschlexia. It was good. It was good. I liked it. So one problem in particular is phone numbers, because a lot of phone numbers in, I think, in Germany, certainly in other parts of Europe where they still say the numbers the Germanic way, phone numbers are eight digits long, and they typically give out the numbers in groups of two. So you have to wait for each group of two, you have to wait until the whole number is articulated before you can then write it down. One other letter writer from Norway said that Norwegians used to do it their Germanic way, but then in 1949, a statute was passed basically mandating that they switch because it was kind of confusing. That could be one reason they switched. There could be another reason, kind of a little occupation backlash. Ah, maybe, yeah. So apparently overnight on July 1st, 1951, says Jonas Finninger, state broadcasting and the schools just started doing it the other way. There are still apparently a few old timers who say, you know, 7 and 60 or 6 and 50, but for the most part, it's the English way there. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of people were had really interesting things to say about that episode, which makes me think that, yeah, maybe we should do a follow-up episode. But that's for the future. Today, recently on the Lexicon Valley blog, we ran a piece by D.S. Bigham. He's an assistant professor of linguistics at San Diego State University. It was a post about this notion of sounding gay. And in fact, earlier this year, as part of Slate's video series called Ask a Homo, Brian Lauder, who writes very eloquently about LGBT issues, did a four-minute video, I think, about this question of, is there a gay voice? Do gay men sound a particular way, or at least some gay men? There does tend to be a sort of specific way that gay white men in particular speak. Um, it involves lisping, it involves pitch fluctuation, it involves maybe a certain kind of dialect. Perhaps we could define it all as for being a feminine way of speaking, right? So that was Brian Lauder, as I mentioned earlier this year. This is a question, Bob, that you and I have discussed, and I wanted to do a deeper dive, you know, a full episode about this idea. What does it mean to sound gay? Why do we have this stereotype of the gay male voice? And what characteristics are we talking about when we think of this stereotype? And as a point of full disclosure, I should say we were both a little bit trepidatious about this because we didn't wish to be accused of being homophobes or bigots or rampant stereotypers or, or worse. But now the literature is kind of piling up, an example of which you just described, and also in the academic literature. So we're just going to, uh, God, I don't think I've ever used this expression before in my life, and may I never use it again, but go for it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we found the right person to talk about it. He's a gay man. He is a speech scientist at the University of Minnesota. His name is Benjamin Munson. Wait, 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 wait. Did you say University of Minnesota? Yes, University of Minnesota. So, Mike, we're not just going to go for it. We're going to golden go for it. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, well, ben is, <laughs> ben is on the line. Hopefully he didn't hear you say that. I don't think he did. I had us muted. Hey, Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
Ben, I want to lead here with a video that I know you very much dislike. This is part of a routine by the actor and comedian David Cross in which he talks about the gay voice, as he puts it. But I, I want to talk about that voice for a second. I want to talk about that gay voice. You know, this, you know, the Gabriel's going to do what Gabriel's going to do, this voice. The, it's the gay voice. Not all gay men have this voice, but only gay men have this voice. Like, you've never heard any heterosexual, you've never heard any heterosexual in the history of the world, ever, who's ever said, like, guys, seriously, I want to go out tonight and I want to get so much pussy. I'm going to get so much pussy, you guys. Oh. No, never. Never. That is a voice we attribute to gay people for a good reason. Because, and it's genetic. It's genetic, in other words. Ben, tell me, first of all, what is it that David Cross is doing when he's affecting the gay voice? I detect that he is putting on a little bit of a lisp. As a speech scientist, how would you describe what he's doing or what else he's doing? Well, I detected three things in, in what David Cross was doing here. The first is that he was raising the pitch of his voice overall. The second was that he was doing a lot of what we call high-rising terminals. Sometimes it gets called up-talk. Mm-hmm. I just did an example of it there, up-talk. And the third thing he's doing is he is making a distinctive production of his S sound. It's interesting that you use the word lisp. When we train people to be speech therapists, we think of a lisp as an articulation of S where the tongue is between the teeth, he's producing an S that I hear is actually not lisped, but hypercorrect. So something like where he's putting especially high-frequency energy into his S sound. Mm-hmm. And so this voice that he's doing is what he and I guess a lot of other people think of as the stereotypical gay voice. I have a strong suspicion that if you played this to panels of listeners in English-speaking countries, at least in North America, that yes, many of them would label this as gay-sounding. But that's a speculation. We don't have large-scale data sets on this. No data accumulated, but you're not like a gay voice denier, are you? (laughs) Well, I think we have to have a, a definition of the gay voice here. We come into a problem here like saying African-American English. You know, when you say African-American English, you make the implication that every African-American speaks African-American English and that only African-Americans speak African-American English. And we know neither of those things are true. So I am not a denier that there are people out there who speak in a way that is, broadly speaking, similar to David Cross's rendition, although his is very stereotypical and given the laughs he elicits from his audience, probably quite intentionally so. So I think when you call it the gay voice, you're implying every gay man uses it, and you're implying that only gay men use it. And I think it's pretty clear that neither of those is true. Right. And actually, I was just, because I know you were kind of pre-infuriated about this <laughs> tape for, uh, for our convenience, I was just kind of tapping the glass. Yeah, uh, no, but, that's good. That's good. But, you know, if we stipulate, no, not all gay men possess or affect these characteristics, and if we also stipulate that because you have these vocal characteristics, you're not necessarily gay, you do acknowledge that it's a thing, right? And you study the thing, whatever it is. That's a pretty fair statement there. So let's talk about some of these studies then. There are a number of studies going back to the 90s at least that have asked the question, what is this voice and can we quantify it in some way? The study that I think you're referring to here is by Rudy Gaudio in the journal American Speech in 1994. 
And what Rudy was looking at was this stereotype that people had talked about around that time, that gay-sounding men had bigger excursions of pitch. Just to give you an example of this, I'm changing the pitch of my voice over the course of this utterance quite a bit. I don't know that that's particularly authentic, but he was interested in whether or not a sample of gay men was in fact going to do more pitch variation than a sample of straight men, and whether listeners associated this pitch variation with sounding gay. Okay, and let me just read a few sentences from his paper that lays out what he was trying to do. He says, what does it mean to say a man, quote, sounds gay? This paper looks specifically at an oft-repeated yet largely unexplored stereotype of gay men's intonation as more, quote, dynamic than that of other men. Closely tied to this idea is the more general stereotype that gay men sound, quote, like women. That's fancy linguistic way of saying, when you talk about dynamic intonation, another way of saying that is sing-songy, right? And like women, high-pitched. Not all women have high-pitched voices. And sing-songy is a term that a hundred different people would give a hundred different definitions of. So, yes, it's a fancier way of saying it. It's also a little more scientifically precise. Okay, so what was the experiment that Gaudio did? Well, he had four gay men and four straight men reading two passages, one that was about accounting and the other that was a dramatic passage from the landmark gay play Torch Song Trilogy. (laughs) Two very different pieces of text. Very, very (laughs) different genres. So what he found was that in the various different ways that he quantified the sing-songiness of speech, the pitch variation in speech, he couldn't find a difference between the groups. He'd set himself up for a little bit of a disappointment there because with samples as small as the ones he was looking at, you don't have a lot of statistical power to find group differences. But what he did find is that when you have people listen to these different passages and rate them along different rating scales, like whether they sound straight or gay, effeminate or masculine, reserved or emotional, etc., he found some differences between the speakers, where the gay-sounding speakers indeed did sound gayer than the straight-sounding speakers. So in other words, people who listened to these readings were largely able to tell whether or not the person reading it was gay. Well, they weren't asked to make a binary judgment of gay or straight. They were asked how gay or straight sounding they were on a continuous scale where one was extremely straight, seven was extremely gay, and four was a neutral midpoint. And so it wasn't simply a, is a person straight or gay type rating scale. It was a how gay or how straight. So what does this study ultimately tell us then? Again, this was an early study and there have since been other studies. I mean, ultimately, this study was good because it established that this was a legitimate area of inquiry and because it took a lot of speculation that people had made in previous sociolinguistic studies and applied some experimental rigor to it. And that was completely groundbreaking, and this study is widely cited for that reason. Unfortunately, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about the topic of interest, primarily because we now know a whole lot more about pitch variation than we did previously. And we know that two passages can differ in pitch variation for very, very different reasons. Somebody can just scale up the high pitches and scale down the low pitches to get more pitch variability, or you can use just qualitatively different intonation contours. And we have no idea what the pitch variation measures in this study ultimately tell us. It's still a very open question. Let's talk about a study that you did. But before we do, can you just unpack that phrase, intonation contour? What exactly does that mean? So if you take a sentence like, I'll first say it in monotone, will you have marmalade or jam? You can say it a hundred different ways, sort of like the intro acting exercise. Will you have marmalade or jam? Will you have marmalade or jam? Will you have marmalade or jam? 
You know, those are just three of many, many different ways that you can say that string of words. Each one of them has its own meaning associated with it. You know, whether or not you're putting focus on marmalade or jam or both of them, whether you're asking a question or making a sort of sarcastic comment. I'm thinking of an episode from Seinfeld when Kramer got a bit role in a Woody Allen movie. <laughs> yeah, what is it? These, something, these pretzels, these pretzels, are, pretzels making are making me thirsty. Making me thirsty. Yeah. Okay, I'm there with uh, Woody. You know, I'm at this bar and I turn to him and I go, uh, boy, these pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> is that how you're going to say it? No, no, I'm working on it. Do it like this. These pretzels are making me thirsty. 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 So as you mentioned, we do have more data now, in part because of people like you. You're a speech scientist. You did studies following on what Gaudio did. So in the early aughts, I was interested in this question of what makes someone gay-sounding. And my primary research area is in language acquisition. And, you know, in language acquisition, we're always looking for cases of language acquisition late in life because we're interested in what happens after the so-called critical period for language acquisition has ended. And so I wanted to do a study that just established here in Minnesota what the norms are for adult gay and straight speech so that I could eventually look at how children come to acquire these styles here. I'll just talk about the men in the study. I tried my best to blindly recruit 11 gay and 11 straight men to the study, meaning that it wasn't a study where I was saying, hey, gay people, you know, come here and let me measure how gay-sounding you are. It was more, you know, I'm looking for a variety of people for a study on personal characteristics and speech and looked at a variety of speech samples from them. The one that I published in 2006 was Productions of Single Words, where the single words were chosen to have lots of S's in them, so I could understand the stereotype of the distinctive S. Mm -hmm. And others were loaded with the vowels that are distinctively produced in Minnesota here. So if you think about movies like Fargo, the O, the O, the E, and the A. Oh, jeez. Here's the second one. It's in the head and the hand there. I guess that's a defensive wound. I had words that were loaded up with all of those so I could see how gay and straight men adhere to or don't adhere to the local regional dialect. And what did you find? So what I found was that indeed there was a distinctive S. Group-wise in the gay men, there was a distinctive S. And it was very much like the one that David Cross was affecting in his portrayal. Okay, let's see. What do I want? (laughs) Ah, there's so many things here. I don't even know what half of this is. Okay. Um, let's see. I'll have, sun-dried tomatoes. It was an S that has a concentration of energy in the higher frequencies, this S. There's nothing about that that matches the definition of lisp, at least as speech-language pathologists use Mm -hmm. it. I also found differences in the vowel production. These were a little subtler, but the gay men were less likely to use the traditional Minnesotan U and O pronunciations, and they were more likely to use the more innovative pronunciations of the vowels a and a, the ones that sort of are moving toward the Californian norm. Mm -hmm. And I found that listeners used these very same acoustic parameters when they were asked to judge how gay or straight the talkers sounded. So if you present these words, which are, you know, they're content-neutral words, it's not like they're saying anything that has a connotation of sexuality. When listeners are presented with these words, It's those very same patterns that they use to gauge how gay or straight somebody sounds. 
All right, let's take a short break right now and mention our sponsor, The Great Courses, where the desire to learn doesn't stop after college. The Great Courses offers audio and video lectures taught by top professors from universities around the country. We've been highlighting on this program a course called The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. It's taught by a former and, I hope, future guest of this show, Ann Curzan at the University of Michigan. If you order The Secret Life of Words right now using the URL thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon, you'll get 80% off the original price. And you could purchase lectures on more than 500 topics. You can watch them, listen to them during your commute. Hey, you can watch them during your commute, I guess, if you're not driving. Remember, the 80% off deal only applies to The Secret Life of Words and is only available while we're highlighting that course. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. You know, we're all very familiar with the notion of affecting certain language patterns. People who go to England for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for six days and come come back saying, oh, I say, the lorry was, was, was simply <laughs> bumptious. I, I don't know. <laughs> and and we, we know that people can revert to the regional dialects when they're back home. This is called code switching. Uh, code switching, yeah. exactly. Is the gay speech that you encountered categorically an affectation or a, a learned behavior or a, a mimicked behavior of what the speaker believes is gay speech? Well, in answering that question, let me tell you about another study, and this was the, the really wonderful dissertation from Stanford University of Rob Podesva, who is now a professor at Stanford University. Rob was interested in this question of what does it mean to sound gay? His background is in both phonetics and in linguistic anthropology. And so rather than do what I did and get people into a sound booth and have them, you know, read words and sentences and tell stories presented on a computer screen, he did ethnography. He followed people around, a small set of people around, and got recordings of them. And in particular, his dissertation focuses on one person who he calls Heath. By Rob's descriptions, Heath sounds gay. But what Rob showed is that the specific ways that Heath sounds gay are very different in a situation where he is giving medical counseling because he's a, an advanced med student, and cases where he's having a barbecue with his fellow gay friends. So what Rob showed is that we have to stop talking about this in terms of just is it gay sounding or straight sounding and think what does it mean to sound gay? In some cases it means sounding high maintenance. In some cases it means sounding very articulate and precise. In other cases, it means sounding like you're not from this area, particularly if you're in the Midwest, where it's not cool to be from the Midwest, and so you want to sound like you're from New York or California. Sounding gay might mean sounding not from around here. And what I've been trying to work on in my ongoing research is figuring out how children, then adolescents, then young adults, then adults proper, how they learn to map which speech features convey those different personality traits, high maintenance, precise, intelligent, worldly, etc., and how those come to form part of their identity, which then later they might label as part of their gay identity. I don't want to get us off a really good trajectory here, but there's something else that you mentioned earlier that caught my attention, and that is the, the lack of evidence in your research of the so-called lisp that yeah. has been classically a stereotype of gay speech, you found something almost the opposite, an elongation of the S sound, or a more dynamic one, which, by the way, corresponds with my very anecdotal experience of hyper-precision and elongation. 
but not the lisp that I remember my dad ridiculing mm-hmm. when I was a little kid. And in fact, you know, if you just go back and do a survey of some of the more toxic film portrayals, even from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, that was the stereotypical portrayal of the gay men with having what we would call a frontal lisp, the tongue between the teeth. And I have yet to document that. Yeah, it's kind of the Loch Ness Monster of speech research, right? It is the Loch Ness Monster of speech research, meaning when people find it, and there are those who claim to have, you want to scrutinize the photographs really, really carefully. Do you have any idea where this lisping stereotype came from? If you think about what people thought of sexuality in the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, they still thought about it in very Freudian terms as a state of arrested psychosocial development. Mm. And so if you think of it as, you know, gay men are in an arrested childlike state of psychosocial development, it just stands to reason then that gay men would produce speech in a childlike way. And one of the most salient stereotypes of what children sound like is a speech error like a frontal S. That's really interesting. That makes total sense. So the sum total of the research over the last 20 years suggests that there is some there there with regard to this voice. Yes. And so what would be the way that you would want to definitively or not so definitively describe what this voice is? How should lay people talk about this voice? Thank you for asking that question. That's a great question. So, you know, it's not going to be something that is global. It's not even going to be something that is trans-dialectal. It's going to be something that is likely to vary just as much as regional dialects vary. And that's something from the David Cross clip that really upset me. Because he's suggesting that it's just uniformly universal. Not only universal, but genetic. That it's part of your genetic code. He seems to be conflating homosexuality itself with the speech patterns associated with it. And that's a non-starter, I assume. Yeah. It's not like anybody out there is taking David Cross seriously as as a scientist or even as someone who provides anything other than just kind of base comedy. But yeah, it's a pretty idiotic assertion. The second thing is that it's going to change over time pretty quickly. One example of this is the difference between yeah and ah in Minnesota. Back in the early aughts when I was doing my research, people really had an association between sexual orientation and whether you said sad or sad. Nowadays, people don't have that association anymore. If anything, sad just sounds a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more Californian, but it doesn't sound particularly gay or straight. Mm -hmm. The third thing is that it's probably going to be easier to define when you get judgments from listeners than when you go in doing a fishing expedition for specific phonetic features. You know, there are so many potential places where gay-sounding speech could reside in the speech signal that someone like me who wants to do just a a massive acoustic analysis is probably making the task too hard. You know, ask listeners what they think and find the features that listeners converge on, that listeners agree about and that they agree about across talkers, across words, across scenarios. That's probably going to be where you get the most bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things you said that, that puzzle me. Understanding that regional dialects influence everyone's speech, including so-called gay voice, there are speech patterns that are universally understood to suggest gayness. And maybe it isn't a list, but there are are the qualities that make us all go, oh, that's effeminate, and and set our gaydar off. Well, you know, you do have a subset of portrayals of gay men and actual gay men in the media 
And if they have this particular speech style, then it's going to be something that everybody has access to as their kind of benchmark for what it means to sound gay. This is something that David Thorpe, my friend and colleague who's recently made a film about this, this is something that he explores in the film that he's got coming out next year. The second thing is that deep down in many people's hearts, though less so with every passing generation, there's still an association between being gay and some kind of gender inversion. Anything that anyone does, whether it's with their voice or with their clothes or with whatever, anything that anyone does that is suggestive of the opposite sex is going to read as gay. And so all you have to do is pick some feature that is characteristic of women's speech and emulate it, and people will say that sounds gay because people of a certain age and older still have this gender inversion notion. Okay, so now that I think of it, it's hard for me to identify which part of my notion of the stereotype is informed by my anecdotal experience among my gay Mm -hmm. friends and acquaintances and so forth, and what I've seen from let's say, Zach Galifianakis in the campaign. He didn't identify as gay, but everybody else was looking at him and assuming he was, based entirely on his speech patterns. Um, Boys, put down your utensils. I want to talk to you about something real quick. I wanted to take this time to say that we're going to be under a lot of media scrutiny. So if there's anything that you want to talk about, any kind of secrets... Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, I mean, that's a, that's a hard question to, to answer. So let me answer this in a roundabout way by saying, you know, children start in the middle of the first year of life, as my guess. They start sort of mapping out the way that individual features of men and women's speech convey individual components of men and women's personalities. And long in advance of identifying as gay or straight, they're emulating particular speech characteristics that convey things like, you know, socially engaged or cool and detached, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, what probably happened is that the first thing, I don't know whether it's the chicken or the egg, is that, you know, there was a group of people who didn't publicly identify as gay, but who did publicly identify as more socially engaged than the average man and more articulate than the average man. And they had a particular speech style, which was sort of the evolutionary rudiments of what we call the gay speech style these days. And it was only when being gay and being out became a thing, and then an accepted thing, and now an accepted good thing, and in some places sort of a desirable characteristic, that that style got labeled as specifically gay. Hmm. So it's modeling, but is it modeling female speech Uh, sophisticated speech or gay male speech? So it's not like gay men are trying to sound like women. So if you ask people, sound like a woman, they do a lot of stuff that gay men don't do. Gay men don't, you know, make the kind of articulatory maneuvers that give the illusion of a a shorter vocal tract. And this is something that people do do when they're asked to sound like a woman. So it's not that they're just saying, aha, you know, here's a woman, I want to sound like her. It's they're saying, aha, here's a room of people, five of whom are women, five of whom are men, three of whom I identify as being very witty and articulate, and I can identify the features of their speech that convey articulate and witty, and I want to emulate them. So it's not emulating men or women, it's doing a really sophisticated analysis of what speech features convey what different personality characteristics and choosing the set of speech features that matches your your nascent and then established personality. So in a sense, all of us, men, women, gay or straight, 
at least part of our speaking style is, I guess you could say, socially constructed in a way. At least part of. Uh, a good chunk of. <laughs> okay. Some might say the vast majority of. Okay, so we're, we're all performing, in a sense, the person that we want to be. And so, Indeed. And so when we talk about people sounding girly or effeminate or masculine or butch, we are invariably, to some greater or lesser extent, conflating biology and gender and sexual orientation. We're conflating the hardware that we have by having vocal tracts of a particular length and vocal folds of a particular thickness. We're conflating that with with the social choices we made during language acquisition and the models that we had available to us during language acquisition. You know, I grew up in a linguistically rich environment because I grew up in in a multiracial, income-diverse neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. So I heard African-American English. I heard very rich vernacular version of Buffalo English. I heard people from downstate who came up to Buffalo because the houses are cheaper. I have many more linguistic resources and... As a result, I had a, a richer set to select from when I developed the speech style. And yet, if I didn't know that you were a gay man, I would probably assume that you were based on your speech. Do you agree with me in a sense? Do you think you sound gay? I mean, do I think I sound gay? I guess if you think I sound gay. <laughs> so what I think you hear when you hear me sounding gay is that you hear that I have a very hyper-precise speech style that I choose my words very carefully. If I do acoustic analyses of my own speech, I have extremely hyper-articulate speech. I never mumble. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that is very reliably a characteristic of women's speech as compared to men's speech across different cultures, across different regional dialects in the U.S. So the fact that I have taken on that speech characteristic means that the generic person out there is going to be pretty likely to identify me as gay-sounding. You know, on my... um on my one to ten scale, you're about a five on, on gay speech, but the Minnesota thing, uh, is there anything you can do to eradicate that? Why would I want to eradicate it? It's awesome. Now, you better believe that I'm ratcheting up the Minnesotan in this because I'm putting on a performance, and part of the performance that I'm putting on right now is to show your listeners I am not from the East Coast and I am not from the West Coast. Part of my wanting to sound that Minnesotan is because People from Minnesota are not understood to be smart and chic or anything like that. And I really want everybody to know, without saying it explicitly, because I'm sure this part's going to get edited out, I want everybody to know that I'm doing as much as I can to be not the typical academic, because this is not a role I feel comfortable in at all. Again, you know, I don't pretend that I have access to anything like data, but in my anecdotal experience, and I've been on Earth a long time, the incidence of clear gay speech, if you look at the universe of my friends and acquaintances uh, who are gay, mm-hmm. gay men, I would put the incidence of gay speech at you know, something like 10 to 15%. Wait, Bob, but you yeah. have one gay friend, and so 15% of the time <laughs> he talks. <laughs> hey, you've got more than me. I've got my husband. So what's your best guess? I mean, I know it's unacademic, but you've already said that you don't care much for that environment. So uh, go off reservation. What's your guess? So among the gay people I know, we're talking about a universe of about 25 people, and I'm going to put it at about 20%. So there, huh. I'm going to go a few percentage points higher than you. Dude, we got to get you out of the Midwest. Why? I love it here. There's a, another podcast at Slate called The Gist. It's hosted by Mike Pesk. It's a fantastic podcast, and they have a running segment 
with a writer from The New Yorker who writes about science and academic studies. The segment is called, Is This Bullshit? Like, no, this is actually some good science here. This stands up or it doesn't. And so I think we can conclude that with regard to the gay voice, it's not bullshit, right? It's not total nonsense. Yeah, with the proviso that people have done better or worse at getting quasi-random samples, but, you know, nobody's got the kind of random sample, truly random population-based sample. And even then, we would have to rely on them actually accurately telling you their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. But with those provisos in mind, no, it's not bullshit. So if you don't like David Cross's gay voice, whose do you like? Scott Thompson. All right, so Kids in the Hall, remember Kids in the Hall? I do. Scott Thompson is one of the kids in the hall. He is gay, and he had a character that he did on Kids in the Hall called Buddy Cole. To me, it's quite similar to David Cross, but because it comes from a gay man, it just seems so much gentler and kinder, and it's just, I mean, it's hilarious. Now that I own a gay bar, I can't stay in the closet anymore. (laughs) I'm as high profile as a city councilor. Of course, it's becoming next to impossible for anyone to stay in the closet anymore. But with all those hapless celebrities being dragged out by the press, (laughs) that must be terrible. Millions of people going, ew. This actually ties into another possible prejudice of mine. But I think that you don't really love kids in the hall on its merits, I think it's because you self-identify as a Minnesotan, as sort of South Canadian. In the interest of full disclosure, whether or not, I, I have no problem with you using what I'm about to say, but it's not my proudest moment. You know, part of the reason I ratchet up the Minnesotan is because it kind of mitigates the gay. You know what I mean? It's actually an interesting juxtaposition in the performance that I'm giving between gay, which has its connotation of sort of worldly and articulate, and, you know, heck, I do have a PhD. I mean, I do have a full professorship at a Research One university. But listen to me, you know, I grew up in working-class Buffalo, New York, and I live in, in Minnesota, which is not a cool, hip place. You're a metrodome sexual. <laughs> <laughs> ben, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Benjamin Munson is a speech scientist at the University of Minnesota. If you want to write in about your thoughts or opinions about this week's episode, please do so at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter, where, by the way, Bob, we now have more than 5,000 followers. Thanks so much for everyone who's following us. Spread the word at lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes if you haven't already done so. Just search for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store where you can give us a rating and a review. I want to thank Ben Munson and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yeah, we are done. And we are taping this prior to Thanksgiving. Bob, if I don't talk to you again, have a great holiday. I'll speak to you next week. Thanks. Same to you and yours. Later, Gopher. Gopher.